I want to begin this morning with a very simple, but I think a very important question. It's, it's pretty direct. It's just this. Does truth matter? Does truth matter? In, in the movie The Miracle on 34th Street, the lawyer who's responsible for the defense of Santa Claus finds it impossible to prove that Santa actually exists and that the elderly man with the white beard on trial isn't just a, a lunatic. And so in a clever tactic, In kind of an emotional poll, he asks the court to reflect, ask yourself which is better, a lie that brings a smile or a truth that brings a tear. Maybe related to Santa Claus, this doesn't matter all that much. Maybe a lie that brings a smile, though I don't think so, is better with Santa. And and maybe that's an area of life that it's not critical, but I think that most of us care very much about truth. Truth does matter. If if you ask your child a question about his grades or an incident at school, and he responds by saying, before I answer, ask yourself which is better, (laughs) a lie that brings a smile or a truth that brings a tear, You'd probably answer by saying, you better tell me right now, and your answer had better be true, or I'm going to bring some tears to you, right? That's how we would answer. Truth matters to us. Truth matters. We don't want to be misled. We don't want to believe lies. Our culture seems to promote a relativism in which we're expected to kind of go along with things that seem incorrect on their face, like that morality is just a social construct, or that boys can be girls and girls can be boys. But at the same time, people seem very concerned about misinformation or fake news. It seems that we inherently value and want to be told the truth, at least at some basic level in our lives. And when it comes to your relationship with God, truth matters as well. Jesus said that God desires people to worship him in spirit and in truth, John 4.24. Worshiping God is not just a free-for-all of beliefs and practices. There are right ways and there are wrong ways. There are right things to believe and there are wrong things. Jesus also said to those who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, John 8, 31 to 32. Apparently, true spiritual freedom depends on truth. Later in the same Gospel of John, Jesus went on to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. Truth matters. In our relationship to Jesus, truth matters. For our spiritual freedom, for how we worship God, truth matters. And perhaps this is why there are so many warnings in the New Testament about false teaching and false teacher. Because if you believe lies about God, then you'll compromise your freedom in Christ, you won't worship God correctly, and eventually you won't even know the Father because you've been led away from his Son, Jesus, by whom we know the Father. And this morning, I want to talk to you about the comforting subject of false teaching. Now, it's not comforting because it's comfortable necessarily. In fact, for many people, it's quite the opposite. It's uncomfortable, it challenges their perception that spirituality is just a vague belief rather than a personal applied trust in Jesus. For some it grates against their non-confrontational personalities and they'd prefer to just avoid talking about it. But it is comforting because we need to be warned so that we're not led astray. We should be on guard against false teaching. And this doesn't mean that we're constantly trying to correct people or uh, we assume that we have everything figured out personally. That's not what I mean. In fact, 
we should be able to distinguish between false teachings and false teachers and sincere believers who misapply or misunderstand something in God's word and they just need a little more instruction in God's word. There are also some doctrinal beliefs concerning which sincere Christians can differ and still be brothers or sisters in Christ. But there are other teachings that lead people away from Christ and cause the way of truth, according to the Apostle Peter, to be blasphemed. And those teachings, as well as the people teaching them, they need to be recognized and they need to be called out for what they are. You should avoid false teaching because it's destructive. It, it leads people away from the grace of God back into the bondage of sin. It attempts to steal glory from God and it causes Christianity to be blasphemed. So using the scripture and some contemporary examples, this morning I want to teach you some of the red flags to look out for so that you're not deceived by false teaching. Now there are many passages in the New Testament that deal with false teachers, and so I've selected one of those passages to use today as our outline. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 to 7. We're going to start with verse 3 where we find the first red flag of false teaching, and that is you can beware of novelty. If you're gonna avoid false teaching, you can beware of novelty. First Timothy 1.3 says this, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. The apostle Paul instructed Timothy to command certain people who were teaching false doctrine not to teach any different doctrine. I want you to consider the situation they were in for a minute because I think it helps us to understand what was going on and what was meant. It was just early in the history of the church. It was probably the early to mid 60s AD and at this point there was no New Testament as we know it. It wasn't gathered together in a book yet. The testimony of the apostles concerning Jesus had been written or was currently being written at the time by the apostles and so they were, they were faithful in doing that but because copies had to be made by hand, not every church had one. In fact, very few churches had one. So you can imagine how the gospel was being spread. Paul would go to a new community, he would plant a church and then he would communicate orally to people in that church the teaching. He would appoint leaders who were then responsible to make sure they knew the teaching that they had learned and memorized and that they kept it pure, that they added nothing to it and they took nothing away from it. So for Paul, correcting false teaching was critical to the survival of the young church. And he told Timothy that if anyone taught anything different than what he had told them about Jesus, Timothy had to correct them and he needed to stop them. Now, you and I have the benefit of having the New Testament, the Word of God. By our time, the gospel, has, as recorded in the New Testament, has proliferated to the point where it's not going to be put back in the box. It's not really at risk of being corrupted in the same way that it was in Ephesus where Timothy was stationed and to the people Paul told him to correct and make sure they kept the teaching pure. How much more then should we stick to what we have. When we have the, the teaching of the apostles, we ought to stick to it. We have the established testimony of the apostles witnessed by the Holy Spirit and established in the church for over 2,000 years. We have broad doctrinal agreement throughout the church concerning the things that relate to the core doctrines of the gospel and are required for salvation. So, we should be really skeptical when someone claims to be teaching something new, 
or claims to have a new revelation intended for everyone. This doesn't mean that God does not do new things. This doesn't mean that God doesn't use new methods. We believe he does do new works. He does use new people. He teaches us new things personally as we walk with him and we grow with him. But we need to understand the distinction. God may give new direction for the application of his word in our lives or for the method of the preaching of the gospel or reaching a community, but his word doesn't change and his gospel does not change. Let me give you a few false teachings to illustrate this that I think fall into this category. Cults often fail here. They claim to have some new revelation from God that's inaccessible to you, but you just have to trust some individual about this, and this will differ from the teaching of the Bible. The Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons both fall into this category, claiming to have some revelation given to an individual in addition to the Bible and denying the consistent teaching of Scripture and the church that Jesus is the unique divine Son of God. One person I want to warn you about that falls into this category is Brian Simmons, the translator, translator for the Passion Translation. There are a host of reasons that Brian is a false teacher and that you should not use the Passion Translation. First, he claims to be a linguist of sorts and bases this on missions work he did among a tribe in South America. But the missions organization he worked with has since said that he is not a linguist and minimizes his claims about being a translator. He also claims that he gets the sense of his Bible translation from the Aramaic, a more heartfelt language and therefore a more heartfelt translation. This is the language he says Jesus spoke and the apostles spoke, but this is just a diversion. All but a couple of sentences of the New Testament are written by the apostles in Greek. Why, if God intended us to get a more heartfelt translation from the Aramaic, was the New Testament not written in Aramaic? The apostles knew Aramaic. They could have written the New Testament in Aramaic, but they apparently were not inspired to do so, or they would have. Further, in some sermons and interviews, Brian makes some pretty wild claims. He claims that God took him and showed him a vision of the heavenly library where he was tempted to steal the 22nd chapter of Revelation, but God said he wasn't ready for it, but that he will be one day. He claims that this 22nd chapter is not of the same authority as the finished Bible we have right now, but what other implication are we to draw from this except that he's setting us up for claims he plans to later make that he can add to the word of God by adding a chapter onto the end of the Bible. He further claims that to prepare him for the translating work, God appeared to him in a vision and touched his forehead right at the hairline like this and expanded his brain so that he can understand meanings of Hebrew and Greek deeper than those who have studied these languages their entire lives. Now listen, I like to give people the benefit of the doubt, and sometimes when they tell me about their experiences, all I can do is say, who knows, and who am I to judge what you experienced in your quiet time with God? But think of the implications of what this man is saying. He's saying that if you really want to understand the heart of God, you have to go through him and his translation because he has supernatural knowledge about God's word that no one else does. In other words, he puts himself in the position of Jesus himself, claiming to be a mediator between real truth 
between God and you. This is manipulative. It's false teaching. It claims to supersede the word of God handed down from the apostles with a new revelation that nobody else has received. It ought to be avoided. And the red flag that this is an example of is that we should be very cautious when someone claims to have received something totally new. Not just new to them. We're always learning things that are new to us. But when somebody claims to have a teaching no one has ever taught before about the Bible, something, a revelation no one else has ever received before, about God's truth, about God's word, about his work in the world that's new to the history, new to the Bible, new to the church, we ought to be very careful. Christianity is not like an ice cream shop. There's not a new flavor every month, right? This is not what Christianity is. We are instead called to maintain the gospel with purity. And so we ought to have a really healthy kind of skepticism when somebody claims, comes claiming, I've got a new revelation. Nobody else has ever gotten it, never heard before. And in order to hear it, you have to listen to me. Be very cautious. That's a huge red flag. The second red flag to beware about so that you can avoid false teaching is speculation. 1 Timothy 1.4 says that Timothy was to command people not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Then, as now, people wanted to attach all kinds of opinion, cultural nonsense, and personal crazy to the gospel. And when Paul mentions myths and endless genealogy, he was probably referring to uh, people who had a fascination, uh, um, Jewish teachers typically, who were claiming to have uh, insight and knowledge into the, minu- the minutia, the, the tiny details of the Old Testament, little mentions in genealogies, and then they blow them up into big doctrines claiming to have some new understanding. There was a tendency to stretch and to allegorize the Old Testament to mean something different than what the authors intended. And one somewhat amusing example of this in contemporary preaching that maybe you can relate to often happens with the story of David and Goliath. Have you ever heard a sermon on the, day, on the story of David and Goliath that tell you what the meaning of the five smooth stones is? Have you ever heard a sermon like that? I did a quick search on the internet and I found that these smooth stones can represent faith, courage, trust, praise, and obedience. Someone else said that they represent faith, obedience, service, prayer, and of course, the Holy Ghost. And we know that's the one that hit Goliath in the forehead, isn't it? But of course, the Bible doesn't say that anywhere. In fact, it's a completely baseless claim that these stones mean anything other than that David picked up stones because he was going into battle. But contrary to this imaginative sort of teaching, the apostles didn't claim to teach something based solely on a vision they received or an insight that they had, something that was detached from reality and came from their imagination. Instead, listen to what the apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1.16. He said, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. They were not writing down opinions, myths, thoughts, uh, cool things that they thought they had. They were writing down eyewitness, what they had seen Jesus do, and they were writing down firsthand accounts, what they had seen or heard Jesus teach. They were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life. We need to be very careful about speculation or teaching based on revelations or personal experiences. I'm not denying that some personal experiences can be very valuable, but they should not be elevated to the place of teaching or doctrine in the church. One example I think of this is people's personal experiences of heaven or hell. 
I'm not saying that those experiences can't be real, but I'm not going to change my understanding of what heaven's like or what hell is like based on a dream someone had. Instead, I'm gonna base what I believe that those places are like on the gospel and on the word of God as it's been revealed to us. Another example of these speculations is syncretism. Syncretism is when someone tries to take elements from one religion and tie them into Christianity. And as an example of this, I have a a specific and very serious warning. And it's kind of a a heavy warning because it, it makes my heart heavy, but I feel like I need to share it with you. And it's this, in 2019, a book was published entitled The Physics of Heaven. There's a lot that's wrong with this book, including pseudoscience and claims of having bizarre dreams and revelations and, and, and more. But the biggest issue with the book is the basic premise. One of the authors claims that she went to, moved to, Sedona, Arizona to seek out and study New Age spirituality, to discover ancient truths that the church had forgotten and lost, and then to recover them and bring them back into the church. She goes on to talk about auras, vibrations, and a whole host of other demonic and new age quackery kind of things, and tries to apply them to Christianity, tying them in to the Bible and into our worship practices. But the Bible does not teach us to go to pagan philosophies and false religions to learn about how to worship God. In fact, it says the opposite. One of the co-authors of this book was the former secretary of a man named Bill Johnson. Bill is the pastor of a very large church in Redding, California called Bethel, which is most recognizable for its worship music. Sadly, Bill and his late wife, Benny, are contributors to this book. They wrote chapters to be included in this book, which is clearly false teaching. In addition, Bill is a proponent of the Passion Translation I spoke to you about earlier. You can see his picture on the page promoting and endorsing this this translation that comes from another person that I believe is clearly a false teacher. And I bring this up for two reasons. I'm not trying to rebuke or correct Bill since others have already done that and he's never gonna hear this message anyway. So I have no delusions of grandeur that Bill's gonna listen to me. But my purpose is that I think you need to be warned about him. I'm not saying that everything he says is obviously evil. It's not. In fact, that's not the case for most false teachers. They're often wolves in sheep's clothing. Neither am I trying to judge Bill's motives since I don't know him, but I can judge his actions. And they tell me that he's either trying to deceive others or that he lacks the discernment to be a teacher of God's word. And so I would warn you not to follow him in his teaching. I'm also telling you this because we've made a decision as a church, especially because of his his. You know, there have been a number of things over the years that people have questioned about Bethel, and we've always just kind of taken the approach of, listen, it's not my job to go around critiquing everybody, and nor could I possibly hope to do that effectively. But because of his attachment to this book that is clearly tied to new age and is cultish and is wrong, I felt like we had to make a decision as a church to say, we're not gonna use any curriculum, teaching, books, or music that comes out of Bethel because of how they've tied themselves with this. Again, this isn't to say that there's never been anything good done by that church. When the Jehovah's Witness come to my door, 
I can agree with a lot of the things they bring up. We have a lot in common, in fact. We agree on many family values and social issues, but there's a little problem. They don't believe that Jesus is God, and I do, and I think that's critical. And so it's not that nothing that comes from false teachers could ever sound true, could ever be good. It's that where there are things that are clearly wrong, we can no longer continue to follow them. And so I feel like I have to warn you against Bill and Bethel. Now you might think, what's the big deal with speculating a little bit, or if they have some strange beliefs about visions or vibrations or auras? Well, here's the big deal. Paul warns that these things promote speculation rather than stewardship. Speculation distracts from stewardship. What is that stewardship? Well, first of all, it's the gospel handed down from one generation to the next that we spoke about earlier. This was the stewardship that was being handed down. It had to be kept pure. It needs to be protected and preserved. And in our time, the temptation is to go beyond or add to the word of God that has now been written down. And this tends to distract attention from Jesus and his mission. Speculation distracts from stewardship. It focuses our attention on worthless speculations, worthless things, worthless conversations conversations rather than proclaiming the gospel. It causes people to get caught up clamoring for new revelations and personal experiences and novel teachings that don't help them grow in Christ and actually distracts the church from fulfilling its calling. Now you might think, but they're doing such good work and seeing so much success. Surely God wouldn't bless it if that wasn't true. I wish it was that simple to be honest, but there are hundreds of thousands of people who are Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. Millions, maybe billions, are Hindus and Muslims. So I don't think we can say just because a movement is large or a church is large or that it looks like they're succeeding that they are correct in their doctrinal teaching. The size of the church is not a measure of the church's faithfulness. Beware of people who want to tie elements of Hinduism, Islam, popular culture, New Ageism, or any other human philosophy to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their speculations are harmful rather than helpful. When it comes to false teaching, two red flags to watch out for we've seen are novelty and speculation. The third is bad moral character. Verses five to seven warn us about this. It says this, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. The goal of guarding against false teaching was not pride or self-protection, it was love. It's not just about being right, it's about being right with God. And love does not mean being nice. It is a desire for people to be right with God. It doesn't mean being mean either, by the way, but it doesn't mean just being nice. If we refuse to point out false teaching because it's not nice to do that, it could actually lead people away from God, couldn't it? And false teaching leads away from the love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, not because false teachers can't seem nice, but because Whatever doesn't lead toward God and does not maintain the stewardship of the gospel leads away from the love of God as well, no matter how nice it might appear on the outside. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we are warned about the kind of moral flaws that false teachers possess, and these should be red flags for us. The most commonly cited flaw is greed. Second Peter 2, 1-3 highlights this flaw. It says, but false prophets also 
arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. In other words, people won't have high regard for the way of Christ because of the things that these people promote. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Now listen, I don't think it's right for a church to expect a minister, a pastor, a teacher, evangelist to be impoverished when they have the means to provide. That's not what I'm saying. However, ministers and teachers are taught to be content with what God provides. And greed should not be what drives them. Greed isn't always obvious, except for in the most extreme cases like Kenneth Copeland and some of his cohorts in the prosperity gospel who live extravagant lives while making grandiose promises or even threats if people don't give sacrificially to them. Nevertheless, it is not wrong if we look at a pastor or a teacher's life and ask, what does he stand or she stand to gain from this teaching? Is it possible that he has been corrupted by money? Another related red flag of of character issues is sensuality. If a teacher lives in a manner that doesn't reflect any self-sacrifice and teaches people to live loosely rather than promoting holiness, that's a warning to us. So is pride. When a person continually seeks to draw attention to themselves and tries to make people dependent on them rather than people dependent on Jesus, that's a big red flag. Listen, if your life would crumble If you found out that something was wrong with your favorite teacher, or if that teacher suddenly died, you've got a big problem in your life. Because you weren't called to be a disciple of me or any other teacher, you're called to be a disciple of Jesus. And if the teachers you're listening to are not tying you to Jesus, you got a big problem, that's a red flag. You ought to be very, very careful about people who want to tie you to themselves rather than tying you to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It can be difficult to judge some of these things from a distance, and the point is not that we demand perfection because then no one would ever be able to live up to that and to our standards. But where these character flaws persist or are obvious, we ought to ask ourselves whether that person should be teaching. For instance, I would be cautious about people like Jim Baker. His television ministry fell apart. He went to prison for wire fraud, defunded people of all kinds of money, and there were all kinds of sexual scandal and allegations tied into that. And now he's on TV, and he preaches about the apocalypse, whipping up fear, and then he wants to sell you apocalypse buckets so that you and your family can be safe during the apocalypse. I mean, according to his teaching, I would think we wouldn't be here for that part, but I don't know. It just seems like a scam to me, if I can warn you about that. And where we see the obvious greed of people promoted, they have something obvious to gain, that ought to be a huge step back where we go, man, I don't know, that guy, he's selling me something based on the fearful sermon he just preached. Maybe I ought not listen to him. Maybe there's an ulterior motive. Beware of these character things because they are red flags for us to say, hey, maybe I should not listen to what this person is teaching. The last red flag we see in 1 Timothy 1 is from verses six to seven. It says this, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. You can beware of misused scripture. This is so important. Beware of misused scripture. Paul warned about people who wanted to be teachers of the Old Testament law, but they didn't know what they were talking about. 
yet they made confident assertions about it. Sadly, this still happens today all the time. Let me share one of my biggest pet peeves with you when, when, pre, when preachers are preaching, all right? I can't stand it when a preacher begins his message by saying something like, I'm going to use such and such scripture as a diving board or a jumping off point for today's message. Listen, usually when someone starts that way, you are in for a message that really does dive off into the deep end somewhere. Because the Bible is not a diving board for you to jump off of and make speculations about. It is a foundation upon which you build your life, and it is an anchor that keeps you tied to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you don't jump off of it, you stay tied to it so that you can discern good from evil. Sorry, I get excited because that's just a pet peeve. When I hear a pre- they're not always bad. Listen, I want to clarify. Sometimes a pastor will say that, and they don't mean anything by it other than I'm starting with this verse. So don't judge them just because they use that phrase. But sometimes they use it and then you go, oh boy, they really did just jump off of God's word right there. We don't have many itinerant evangelists coming through towns and preaching all kinds of strange things today. But we have something much worse. We have YouTube. And there you can find all kinds of people pontificating their thoughts that are only based on scripture in the loosest sense of that word, based. Be careful who you listen to on TV or online. Just like being a big church doesn't mean you're teaching sound doctrine, being on the internet doesn't mean you're teaching sound doctrine. Anybody can buy a webcam. What can you do to make sure that you're not duped by someone who's not using God's word correctly? Well, I think the first is the best and most obvious, and it's this, read the Bible yourself. You need to know God's word personally so that you can measure what you hear about it. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, commended a group of people who, when they heard Paul preaching, they examined the scriptures for themselves. It was in the city of Berea. Acts 17, 11 says, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And they're not, they're not reprimanded because they were examining what Paul was saying. They're commended for examining what Paul was saying. They were the people of Berea, and we should be like them. In fact, when you hear of Christians say, let's be Bereans, what they mean is let's be people of God's word, who examine God's word for ourselves. Read the Bible. Read the context of the Bible. The Bible is not a book of one-liners and zingers to be used as diving boards. It's the story of redemption. And as with all stories, it has historical cultural and literary context. Try to understand it in that context. Read the verses before or after the one that the preacher or teacher quoted so you can understand. Ask if what the teacher or preacher is claiming would have made any sense to the people to whom it was originally presented. Ask if it makes sense with what's going on in the rest of the chapter. If not, if it doesn't make that kind of sense, if it doesn't fit with the context, reject the teaching. You also need to be part of a church that makes God's word central. Because God has given gifts in the form of people to the church to help the church to grow into maturity and not be tossed back and forth by the winds of false teaching. Paul wrote this in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 14, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. 
Accountability in a local church can help you beware of false teaching, just like we're doing this morning. And in a church like this, even the leaders are accountable to others. We have a structure that includes pastors as as overseers, as well as deacons and deaconesses and, and elders in the church who know God's word and are able to evaluate doctrine and teaching. So this is another big red flag to watch out for. If a pastor or teacher is completely on his own, doesn't answer to a board, doesn't answer to a denomination, doesn't have a fellowship of churches that they're a part of, they're just on their own, it's all the easier for them to be loose cannons and veer from sound teaching. Novelty, speculation, bad moral character, and the misuse of scripture are four, I think, big, broad categories or red flags about which I wanted to warn you this morning But there are a few others that are also commonly used tactics or words or means that deserve, I think, an honorable mention. And so I want to share with you just a few others in rapid succession. And when people use these terms, it doesn't necessarily mean they're false teachers. I want to make that clear. But I would call them just kind of red flag words. They're words that usually make my little antenna stand up and go, okay, i got to pay special attention to what's going to be said next Because if this person is using that word, I've heard that word used in contexts that are not good, that actually indicate false teaching. And so I would just encourage you to to be aware when these words are used, how they're being used, all right? So here are a few. The first one is declare, when you hear the word declare. This is not always bad. There are some things that we can declare, like the promises of God, the warnings of Scripture against sin, the good news about Jesus. We declare those things. However, when someone uses the word declare in the sense that they expect that because they said it, now God has to do it, he's obligated, that's manipulation, and it's akin to idolatry. It's what the pagans believe about God. They can control gods with their words. Some people do it unknowingly, and they need gentle correction. Others do it in a manipulative way. Sometimes they'll use Proverbs 18.21 as justification, which says, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. However, this proverb is not saying that you can literally give someone life with your words as if you're God breathing the breath of life. Proverbs are not promises of God in that way. They are wise sayings to help you effectively live in God's kingdom. The proverb means that your words can do a lot of good or they can do a lot of harm like James warns us in James chapter 3 when he says the tongue is a small instrument but it can set a forest aflame. It's not saying you can literally speak life like God did in the beginning. It's saying that your tongue is powerful. Be careful how you encourage or discourage people with it. Sometimes people will talk about calling things into existence and I've even heard people say that Christians have creative power through what we say. These are just red flags because they are encroaching on things that only God can do. Only God can create something out of nothing. And he has not given us the authority to do that because we are not gods. The Bible never indicates that this is within our power. Another word that you should watch out for is activate. This is often used when people who want want you to practice, they say, spiritual gifts. And often they will put people in highly uncomfortable and manipulative situations to try and demonstrate that they can have whatever gift of the Spirit that they want to, even though this is contrary to the teaching of Scripture, which expressly says that the Spirit gives gifts as he desires, not that you can just activate whatever gift that you would like to have. You can pray for it, you can earnestly seek it, but you don't get to just pick and choose and activate your own gift of the Spirit. That is the Spirit's prerogative. If you have to be coaxed, and talked into a spiritual gift, is it really a spiritual gift? 
claiming the title apostle. Listen, I believe that there are still apostolic gifts for church planting, and I'm not saying that everybody who has ever used the title apostle or some other title is a false teacher. Please hear me clearly on that. But I would just encourage you to be cautious about people who insist on taking this title for themselves because it can be manipulative. I'm not of the opinion that all titles are bad. Matthew 23, 8 to 10 says, but you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers and call no man your father on earth for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors for you have one instructor, the Christ. I don't believe that what Jesus was teaching was that you can't call your dad, dad and that calling someone pastor or honoring a teacher is wrong. I don't think that's what Jesus was teaching. Paul was called apostle and he called himself apostle. He appointed elders in the church and told people to honor those elders. He said that, that we ought to do that for those who are leaders in our lives. Jesus' point was that we should not clamor for titles, neither should we be dependent on anyone for spiritual well-being other than Christ. And so as I warned you earlier, if there's a teacher in your life who your, your relationship with Jesus would fall apart or you would at least perceive your relationship with Jesus falling apart if they were no longer present. They say, you can't get this kind of revelation from anywhere else. That's a huge red flag. Get out of there. Beware of this phrase, sow a seed. This is often used in pleas for money. And as with most lies, there's a bit of truth in it. Most of the time, this is accompanied by promises of wealth, if you'll give, that the Bible never makes. I was gonna, never mind. It can indicate a form of manipulations being used. A person is trying to get you to do something based on what you hope to get out of it rather than based on the good gifts that God has already given you in Jesus. The word legal, this word is sometimes used to give the impression that there are certain things that you can do that give Satan a legal right over your life or certain things that you can do that give you a legal access to God's presence or some other such nonsense as that. This particular use of the word is dangerous for a couple reasons. It gives the impression that Satan and God are in some kind of clash and that they are almost equals. This is not the impression the Bible gives. Satan has no legal rights over God and he has no legal rights over anything that God has created in the sense that God has all authority and all power. At the end of the days, Satan will not judge you. Did you know that? Satan won't judge you, God will judge you. He's the judge, he's the legal guy and so, when you hear people make claims about legalities, be very cautious about it. The word is sometimes used in a manipulative sense as if there are some things that, you're, that, you're rights as a that are your rights as a Christian and if you could just learn those rights, then God would give you what you need. If you could just learn the secrets, the secret rights. That's a bunch of baloney and nonsense. The mystery of the gospel has been revealed. It's Jesus died on the cross, he was raised from the dead, and that gospel is not just for the Jews, but is being preached to the Gentiles. That's what Paul talks about when he says the mystery of the gospel that's being proclaimed to the Gentiles. And so there's not a mystery of legality that you need to learn to have access to God. All you need to know is that Jesus died for your sin, he's the mediator between God and you, and you can boldly approach the throne to receive help in your time of need. I would encourage you to beware of manipulative altar methods as well. Listen, I know that everybody has a different style. Preachers have different styles. But I've watched as some preachers and experienced as some preachers conduct an altar call and they'll have people standing at the front and they'll begin to push people on their foreheads as if they're trying to get them to fall over. I've also watched preachers and evangelists touch people in ways that are very sensitive and vulnerable. Like when an evangelist, and I'm not saying it's always wrong, but when they make a habit of touching someone on their head and then putting a hand on their stomach, especially when it's a man doing it to a woman, 
There's just all kinds of, you know, senses that go off in my head going, this is a manipulative thing because this is such a vulnerable place to be touched. And now the, all the attention in the room is being drawn to this individual who the person's praying for, and they're expected to perform in that moment. Just be aware that when you respond to an altar call, it is not a performance. It's an opportunity for you to wait on the Lord and seek him. That's it. That's it. And so I'm not saying that it's wrong to lay hands on people. I think it's right. I think the, the New Testament gives us examples of that. But there are people who take advantage of this in a manipulative way that you should be aware of. Beware of defensiveness. Sometimes people will say, don't touch God's anointed. Listen, that's a passage from the Old Testament in which David knew that he wasn't supposed to kill Saul. So I can be in agreement with that. You should not kill false teachers. Don't do that. Bad idea. But it doesn't mean you can't question them. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you can't question someone's teaching. Ask good questions. And if they raise their dander and get defensive about it, that might be a warning. Sometimes pastors and, and people will say, don't quench the spirit. Okay, that's absolutely true. The Bible says that. It also says test the spirits to see if they're from God, 1 John 4, 1. So you should be able to question without someone getting overly defensive and saying, I don't have a good reason, but you just need to listen to me because I'm God's anointed. Don't touch God's anointed. That's a bunch of hocus-pocus baloney that the Bible does not teach. Being argumentative or causing division. One recurring theme regarding false teachers in the New Testament is that they come in and cause quarrels and divisions because they cause people to turn to secondary matters that are not important. They stir up speculations and arguments about things that don't matter. And so they cause division rather than bringing a focused unity on knowing Jesus and making Jesus known, which is the gospel and what we're supposed to be doing. And so where you see this, this is, you know, sometimes you have to call out people for false doctrine. And when that happens, sometimes there is a division there and it's a right division because you've corrected someone. If they're unwilling to receive it, they're going to break off. But... You should beware of people who like argument, who want to stir this up in the church, who delight in it instead of are being grieved by it. If you see a pastor or teacher who is delighting in division because they think they're going to get a portion of the congregation or a portion of Christianity to follow them and their teaching, and they're not grieved by division, it's a huge red flag to say, this, there's something wrong with this guy or this gal. They are not someone that I want to be following. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. We started this message by noting that truth matters to us. And in a culture that too easily veers into relativism, that ends up harming people now and harms people for eternity, it is important that we don't swerve into false teaching. It's noteworthy that many false teachings are based on the relative thoughts and experiences or revelations of a single person rather than eyewitness accounts of what God has accomplished for us in history as the true gospel proclaims. As Peter and John said, we were eyewitnesses of these things. We need to avoid this kind of false teaching. And I hope that the red flags of novelty, speculation, bad moral character, and misused scripture will help you to think carefully about the kinds of teachings that maybe you're presented online, or you're presented in a Bible study group, or you're presented in, uh, in, in a TV program, or in a book that you're reading to help you think carefully, is this from God? Now, I know that this message had the potential to step on some toes, and if I mentioned a name or teaching to which you subscribe, I would merely ask you to judge it by scripture and with an ear to what the Holy Spirit says. Don't listen to manipulative language. Don't listen to hype. Don't be scared. I think one of the tactics that false teachers use most often is this. If you don't listen to me, you're going to miss out on what God's doing. 
So that's a scare tactic. It's a scare tactic to get you to follow them. The call is not to follow a person, it's to follow Christ. God uses people, I'm not denying that. He does all the time, thank, thank God he does. But when they're, when they're using scare tactics, you can, you can be sure they're trying to manipulate. So I, just, I would just ask you this, if, you, if your toes have been stepped on, if you've been offended in some way, would you just go and prayerfully and especially biblically, scripturally evaluate the ministry you've been listening to about which you've been offended this morning? If I mentioned a name that you like, Go and examine that person in the light of Scripture and the red flags that I mentioned this morning, in light of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 to 7, and see if perhaps there is deceit and false teaching in what they're saying and in what they're doing. And then just be willing to recognize it and to turn away from it to what is true and what is good. And I would encourage you in this way as well. I, 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 I'm not sure, how do you close a message where we've just gone through red flags about false teaching? have an altar call where we call out false teachers or something like that. I don't think that's what we want to do. Especially within the flock, we want to correct people gently if they've been led astray. We want to bring them back into what God is doing. And so I think that maybe the most appropriate way we can respond is through this song we sang earlier that reminds us of the core of what we believe about Jesus. That we believe in God our Father, in His Son Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit and in his resurrection from the dead and in eternal life we'll have with him. And so to, to close this morning, I'm just asking ask if you'd stand with me and that we would just with a heart of worship to God sing the things that we hold dear as the gospel of Jesus Christ that we believe firmly together and let it just resound in our hearts and in our lives that we don't want to be led astray into things that are false or speculations that distract from the mission that God has called us to but that instead staying focused on the stewardship of the gospel, we would hold it and we would proclaim it with truth, with clarity, and with focus. Amen? Amen. Let's worship the Lord.